All right, hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 42 and Genesis chapter 43. And I'm going to tell you a story, and it is told six different times in the next three to four chapters. And so I'm going to tell it to you once, and, and we're going to read the whole entire chapter, because then we're going to spend some time looking specifically at one point in this chapter. But, but we're going to go through next week. Next week, you're going to want to come next week and bring somebody because there's something important happens in this chapter, chapter 43, that we're going to pick up on and we're going to go into the next week. And so you're going to want to connect with that. But let me start right off jumping into the text where it says, and Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt. And he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? And so, one more thing. Yeah, he continued, I have, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Look at Jacob's, look at Jacob's response to the drought that's going on. There's a big famine, and I'll explain in detail what's going on. But his sons offer no solution to the famine. His sons are there going, I don't know what to do. They're just kind of hanging out in the house saying, Dad, you provide for him. And by the way, dad is close to 130 years old. You want the 130-year-old man to go work the farm, to go water it when there's not much water? I don't know. His family is hungry. He's seen his sons, his grandchildren. He's seen that they're hungry. And he's seen that the, that the meal on the plate is getting small and thin. He sees the crops are thin. His mood is urgent. Look what he says. That we may not die. Wow. He's pretty mad, isn't he? Imagine your dad saying, go do that or we're going to die. What would you do? Okay, well, I guess dad's serious about this, right? And so here's the context. Context is there's been a famine in, in Canaan where Jacob has been living for the last two years. And in, in that he knows and he's heard they've just had seven great years of plenty. Seven years where, where the crops are great and they've probably been spending well and, and they haven't been saving well. And we know what that's like, right? We know we get a lot of money in, so a lot of money goes out. And, and Jacob and his family, he didn't, they didn't save much, so they had enough for one year of drought, but not seven years of drought. And so now things are getting desperate already. And so look at what he says. He sends his sons to Egypt because he heard that there is a lot of land, a lot of grain, a lot of food in Egypt. And then the ten of Joseph's brothers, they went to go buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. And so Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain. For there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces on the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized him, but he pretended to be a stranger. He pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him again. And then he remembered his dreams about them and said, Please answer your phone. And then he remembered his dreams about them, and he said, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. And by the way, 
That wasn't uncommon in that culture at that time. So your area had a famine. This area didn't. And so you would send some people over to that area that didn't. And maybe you'd spy out the land and maybe you'd figure out, okay, where are they keeping all the grain? How can I go and get some? And maybe your people would go and maraud, steal all of the food that was over there. Because, you know, they didn't have a Walmart. They couldn't just take their little donkeys down to the local Walmart and get some SpaghettiOs or, or whatever you eat. They didn't have Stata Brothers. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have big industrial farming complexes like we have today. They, you know, lived kind of day to day. And imagine you're living day to day and you see the grain bin is really small and you got to project out for the next month and you see that, that you're not going to have enough. And you know that that town over there, they have plenty. They're small, they're weak. And so if your community takes on and takes over that community, you can feed your family. And so it wasn't an uncommon thing for there to be spies And so, Joseph, seeing his brothers, knowing they're coming from a different land, Joseph has a point to make, and we're going to look at this over the next couple of weeks. Joseph says a point. He says, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men. Yeah, we'll see about that later on. They're not spies. No, you have come to see where the land is unprotected. Your servants are twelve brothers, the son of one man, who live in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. It is just as I told you. You are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not, live, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your members to go get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put all of them in custody for three days. The very thing that they did to him. They put him in custody, all right? They put Joseph into slavery, and they put him in the well years ago. It was probably 13, probably 22 years ago, they put him in the well. And then they sold him off. They sold him off to some traders, and then the traders took him, and, and he became a slave to Potiphar. And after about 10 years being a slave in, for Potiphar's household, he got put in jail for doing the right thing. And, and he was in jail for about three years, and finally, and finally... Pharaoh found out he could interpret dreams, and and Pharaoh made him governor over Egypt, and he's been governor for the last nine years. It's been a long time since the brothers met Joseph. It's been a long time since he's seen them, but he remembers what they did to him, and so he puts them in jail for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, he lets that linger for a second, Let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But if you must bring your but you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished over our wait, surely we are being punished because of our brother. Then Reuben said, not that Reuben over there, Reuben said, I tell you, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them. 
since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and he began to weep. But then he came back and he spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and he bound them before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in its sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded the grain onto the donkeys, and they left. They were probably happy to get out of Egypt. Simeon, you're on your own. You're in prison. We're going to hang out and back home with Daddy for a while. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened up his sack to get feed for his donkey. And he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank as they turned to each other with trembling and they said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened. And see if you can hear anything missing from the story. They said, The man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with his father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, and take food for your starving households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give you your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. And as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Boy. Well, Jacob is pretty dramatic, isn't he? Um, my question for us this morning is we just look at, at a portion of that text, and it goes with some of the things that, that I've heard from you as a church, is, is the question is, how do you respond when God speaks to you about something in your life? I want to give you some connection on how to respond when God speaks to you. When God says something in your life, how do you respond when, when, when you're presented something and, and you're in the church and, and God says something to you? How do you respond? One guy told me, he'd been here for a couple months, after he'd been here a couple of weeks, he said he wanted to beat me up. That's how he responded. He said, Paul, I just wanted to go up and I wanted to slug you. Really, he, he wanted to beat me up because he said, I just felt like you were following me around every day, and, and what you were saying, I didn't know how to respond, and so my only way to respond was to hit you. Fortunately, he didn't. <laughs> he weighed a lot more than I did. But there have been other people that said, Paul, it's like you're following us around. Truly, I'm not. 
But I do have a cool app, so I have some of you on my phone. And I do know where you're at and what you're doing, so maybe I am. Okay, I want you to think about this. The Apostle Paul was talking to the Romans. He was writing this book to the Romans, and he says this. He says, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. These are, these are non-Christians. These are, these are Gentile people who aren't, who aren't followers of the Jewish law. And it says, their hearts are also bearing witness. And their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and other times are not. What do you do when, when you're listening to the word of God? Maybe you're having a devotion and God says something to you. Maybe you're coming to church and God says something to you. And something in your heart says, this isn't right. I've got to fix that. This is what I need to do. I need to move because my heart is bearing witness. My thoughts are bearing witness. Some of the things that are going on in my life just aren't right. It's called conviction. Conviction is when your heart and your mind tell you that you did something against God. I think sometimes we come to church and there's a movement of God in your heart, movement of God in your life, and, and, and you feel convicted. You feel this movement and you feel like, I've got to do something. When I first became a Christian, um, my sister invited me to her church and I would go to her church and, and the pastor would say, okay, hey, we, if anybody here wants to get baptized, well, you know, you guys, you need to come forward, come forward and, and show that you want to get baptized. Well, I literally would sit on my hands because I felt God propelling me, wanting me desperately to go forward and get baptized. But I said, no, no, I was baptized when I was a wee little baby. I'm good. And, and this guy would say it, and I, I just felt God pulling and tugging on me to do it, and I ignored it. It wasn't but years later that I finally followed up on that and was baptized as an adult. Remember another time that God was speaking to me, and and I was driving an old truck I had. And he was just talking to me and saying, Okay, Paul, you know, by the way, if, what would you do if something happens as you drive this truck? Well, you know, I started to come up with a plan. More specifically, the, he said, What would you do if the hood of your truck flew open? Well, that's never happened to me before. I don't know why it would happen to me now. And so I said, Well, and I started to make a plan. And as I was driving, and pretty soon, pretty soon, Boom! The hood of my truck flies open, flashes right into my windshield, scares the heebie-jeebies out of me. But because, because I was attentive to the voice, I had a plan. And maybe sometimes God speaks to you, whether you're driving or sitting in the thing, and, and there's some things in your life that aren't right, some things in your life that you've put off, some things in your life that you haven't done, or preparation for things that you need to do, that you've just ignored. The conviction of God is there. See, David is a good model for us. And I want you to think about what David says. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, David could write that because David was a man we know who, who, who sought after the heart of God. And yet David is also an example for us what to do, what not to do, because David... He had an adulterous relationship, and to cover up the adulterous relationship, he committed murder. And he sat on that for months and for months and for months. He sat on that. And his bones, he says, wasted away. He felt tremendous guilt. And finally, God confronted him with, with the prophet Nathan, saying, You are the man. You are guilty before God. God sees what David did in secret. God knows his anxious thoughts. And now David can say... Is there anything in my life that 
you need to change God, please change it. I would pray, and I prayed for you this morning, that as we look at the boy's response, as we look at the men's response, and you see if there's anything in your life that you're holding, any guilt for something that you've done in a while, any, any way that, that you offended God, anything you're trying to cover up, anything you're trying to hide, that before the service is over, you would do something about it. You wouldn't leave here racked by guilt. Let's go back to Genesis. As I said earlier, it is 22 years later. These men, they're probably in their mid-50s, between 60, 45, and 60 years old, I would guess. They're, they're old. They've been, they've been walking around for a while, and they've been carrying this guilt for 22 years. Joseph was 17 years old. He was a young, he was a young spunky brother. He had this coat of many colors and, and would tattle on Simeon and Levi when, when, they, when they cut the hamstring of the oxen over there. Joseph went and told his daddy. We'll find out about that in chapter 49. And we know that those guys weren't bad, and Joseph would tattle. And so Joseph was coming to check on his brothers, the farm, and see how are they doing about the sheep? Are they doing anything right or wrong? Because he's got to go tell dad. And he's wearing this arrogantly multicolored jacket. Well, the brothers come, and, and they say, here's the dreamer, because he told them he had a dream where they would all bow down to him. And he was the guy in the center of the, the wheat fell down and bowed to him. The, the sun, the stars, and the moons, they fell down to him. And they said, there's the dreamer in that jacket. And sure enough, they take the dreamer and they put him in a well 22 years ago. What did you do 22 years ago? Is there anything in your life that you regret doing? Anything in your life that, that you wish you didn't do? Anything in your life that, that a memory comes up and it triggers it? Watch how it affects these boys. See, they never got over hearing the screams of Joseph in the well. The brothers said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. They felt the guilt. They felt the shame. They, so, so they're coming to get grain. They're coming to Egypt to get some grain, and something bad happens to them. And they go, Oh, this is punishment for that over there. Surely. We are being punished because of our brother's guilt. They felt guilty because of the trauma. Listen to what they remember. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. Imagine Joseph in the well pleading, Simeon, let me out! Levi, Reuben, whomever, let me out! Begging, pleading to get out of that well. And the brothers are just having lunch. They're mocking him. They're, they're making fun of him. That was 22 years ago. Is there anything in your life that over the course of time, a memory triggers something that you did wrong? Something that you go, whether it was 22 years ago, 22 months ago, or 22 hours ago, you go, I wish I would have done differently. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I really wish. And now because I did that, bad things are happening. See, they blame it on the guilt of karma. That's why this distress is coming upon us. See, see, we did something bad back then, and so something bad happened to us now, and therefore we're being punished for, for the bad thing that we did. That is, that is a false doctrine, church. You did something bad in the past. That doesn't mean something bad is going to happen to you in the future. 
It doesn't mean that. It doesn't equate. It, it doesn't add up. That is not how God works. You are God's children. You are God's. God loves you, and he's not going to say if he's forgiven you. There might be consequences for your sin. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Have a, a sexual relationship, and, and she gets pregnant, or you get pregnant. depends on who the she is. You know, that's, that's what happens, but, but that isn't karma. You know, you, 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 you steal something as a young teenage boy, and, and 40 years later, you get in a car wreck. You go, oh, no, I was in a car wreck because I stole something as a boy. That doesn't work like that. That's not how God operates. They blame it on karma. Reuben, Reuben gets mad. And if you've ever been in a relationship for a bit of time, you can understand this. Reuben said, didn't I tell you not to sin against a boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. Reuben's been blaming the brothers for this for 22 years. And he goes, historical. Don't you hate it when you get in a fight with somebody that, that you love and they go historical on something that you screwed up with a while ago? But, but I can't do anything about that. I'm sorry. I begged you. I, I, I pleaded. Many people have came to me for marriage counseling because they have yet to solve the historical drama in their life. Issues over the past they haven't dealt with, they haven't worked out. Reuben blames everyone else. He doesn't take the blame himself. He blames everyone else. See, guilt lingers in our behavior. You did something wrong, it lingers. It eats away at our thoughts. It's like a virus, untaken care of, just kind of slowly permeates. And every now and then, something triggers, and you remember that bad thing, and you can never get rid of it. It distorts our relationships, and that's exactly what it did to the brothers. Do you think that there was peace in Jacob's family? Do you think there was unity in Jacob's family? Do you think there was a loving embrace between the brothers? Oh man, we're all for one, one for all. No, it was, it was I'm for myself and you're for yourself. Have a good time. Because they were all eaten, all lingering, and the relationships were distorted because of the guilt of their circumstances. See, God has an answer to guilt. God has a big answer to guilt that a Christian publishing company, and there was a writer for the company, and he said he didn't think that Christians should live in guilt. He said that he didn't believe that Christians, if they've confessed, if they believe God, that they, they need to be run and ruled by guilt. And so there's a little acrostic called, you get to air out the guilt. You get to air out the guilt. This is what you're going to do with the guilt when you air it out. First, you've got to admit what you did was wrong. If there is something that has happened 22 years ago, 22 months ago, 22 hours ago, you need to admit it. You say, God, God, I know, I know this goes against you. See, Romans earlier said that, that you don't have to be a believer to know that that was right or wrong, that God tells you that that is right and that is wrong. It is written in your heart. It is written on your mind. And you know that was wrong. So maybe you did it before you became a Christian. Maybe you did it after you became a Christian. But you need to admit it. You can't live in this, in this world of denial and say, well, rationalize it, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist because one day a thought will come and, and it'll linger. You admit what you did was wrong. You introduce change in your behavior, your thoughts, your words, your attitudes. So first you admit that what you did was wrong. Your, your, your words at that moment were wrong. 
your behavior at that moment was wrong. You admit it, and you start to introduce change. I need to change my behaviors, my thoughts, and that's what we call repentance. Repentance is where you, you say, God, God, I am sorry. I'm going to change. And you change your direction. You actually make a U-turn. You, you leave what you used to cling on to, and you cleave onto what you haven't done for a while. You need to repent from your sins. So you're right standing in front of God. I'm going to, the God's word is going to free you up right now. Your right standing before God is not based upon your good behavior. None of us, none of us can stand in front of God, no matter how well we behave. It doesn't matter whether or not you grew up in a Christian home or, or, or a pagan home. Based upon who we are as people, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory. We are all broken. Some have more cracks in the mirrors than others, but none of the mirrors are perfect. None of the mirrors are pure. All of them have fallen short. See, your right standing before God is not based upon your good behavior. And if you're trying to earn your way to God, you're trying to say, if I just, if I just, if I just behave a certain way, then God's going to be pleased with me. Then let me give you some clarity upon the Christian message. Christian message says your righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. And because of what he's done for you, because of the table, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, he has taken broken pots of clay and he has said, I'm going to use them, enter into my presence. You are holy. You are, you are a, a, an accumulation, a mosaic for God to reflect his beauty onto the world. Philippians 3 Paul writes this letter to this church. We're going to quote it twice. This is what he says. But whatever gains to me, but whatever were gains to me, I know, I I now consider them lost for the sake of Christ. Paul had a lot of worldly gains. He, He had a lot of religious accomplishments and he gave them up. All of the good things that he had accomplished as a good, right standing Jewish person. He, listen to what he says. I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider those, those religious artifacts rubbish, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not in Paul's works, be found in him, having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God based on faith. For I want to know Christ, he says. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to, and the participation in in his suffering, and become like him even to his death. And so somehow to obtain the resurrection from the dead, your righteousness comes in Christ, church. Your righteousness is not based on upon some scale that you have magically made up and said, I'm a good person because I'm on this scale because I'm a little better than all my neighbors. That's not what righteousness is. Righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. So church, today, you are righteous. You are holy. You are God's chosen people, ready for him to use. And so those things that you have been clinging on to That guilt that has been eating away can be forgiven, washed away, cleansed. And today you get to leave this building filled with peace, with joy, because knowing that Jesus Christ is never going to hold that against you.
I want you to press toward the real goal, the goal of knowing Jesus Christ. Press towards it. Push into it and say, say, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. And so what is Jesus doing? Where he's at? What is he doing? How, how do I get to know Christ? You, you engage in his word. You engage with his people. You connect with those who are connected with Christ. And so for some of you, that means that you have people in your life that are disconnected from Christ. Well, that's great. Learn to share your faith with them, but, but find some people in your life who are connected with Jesus and connect one another to Christ. Know the power of his resurrection to erase guilt. You need to know the power of his resurrections. I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. Some of you have probably done some things that are pretty guilt-ridden. There are some relationships in your life that are totally broken and dysfunctional, and they don't work anymore because of things that you said and did, and you know it. And you've never admitted that it's your fault. You've always blamed them. But today you get to say, I'm going to own those things that were mine. And, and I'm not going to live in the guilt and the shame. I did it. God's forgiven me. And, and I'm going to accept the peace that he's going to give me. You need to participate with him in his sufferings. A road that you're going to take could be difficult, could be challenging with him. But that's okay. I'd rather be with him in the difficult situation than without him in the easy situation. Participate and then faithfully focus on filling, fulfilling the Father's will just as he did. How do you live a righteous life? One, he sees you through the eyes of the Son. God sees you. You're allowed into the presence of God. You're allowed into the Holy of Holies. You're allowed into, into, the, into the place where, where the Shekinah glory dwelt. In fact, God says you are a walking temple of God, and, and, and you're allowed to enter into His presence at any time, any day, any moment of the week. You can be, and you are, a walking place of God's presence. And people get to interact with you. People get to see you. And so knowing that, you're going to go, well, how would God's presence act in this situation? How would God, the presence of God, live in the situation? What would the, what, what's going to bring the glory to God? The, what's going to enhance God's reputation? What's going to make this temple look attractive to those around him? You're going to focus on fulfilling the Father's will, just as Jesus did. And if you do that, there's a promise. Paul also writes this to this church in Philippi. He says this. We're going to conclude with this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, past, present, future, with prayer and petition. You know, prayer is where you pray with yourself. You know, petition is where you ask other people to join you, right? If you're signing petitions so that something can become a proposition, what do you do? You sign and you ask other people to do it. And so you're asking other people to join you with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. You present your requests to God. And here's the promise, church. The promise is that the peace of God, the peace of God which transcends all understanding, the peace of God, it will guard your hearts and it'll, your minds in Christ Jesus. Those things that Paul says earlier in Romans is the Gentiles, they know in their hearts and in their minds that what they did was wrong, 
And now, because you're walking with God and you're focusing on fulfilling the Father's will, the peace of God will guard the very thing that at one time condemned you. It will fill you with peace and with joy and with hope and with mercy and with grace because God loves you that much. And so the brothers, they go to Egypt. And in Egypt, they encounter their brother. They don't know who it is. The bad thing happens, and they've not dealt with it. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to see them deal with it. They feel guilty. Is there anything in your life today that you haven't dealt with? Anything in your life that you are feeling guilty, lingering over, and you haven't dealt with, and therefore you don't have peace? Your relationships are fractured, and they're torn, and they're broken. You're like the brothers, and going, it's your fault. When really, the way Reuben responded and why he responded was that way was because it was his fault. He allowed it to happen. Is there anything in your life that you're going, I've got to deal with this? Well, this morning, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And, and if God has spoken to you, God has talked to you, you need to air out that guilt. Admit that it's there. Introduce something new to it. And repent. Maybe this afternoon, some of you are going to have to make a phone call to somebody else and say, forgive me, I'm sorry, for the way that I treated you. Maybe it's impossible to make it right because the person's long since gone, the relationship's long since broken. And so the peace, though, will come over you as you admit it, you introduce change in your behavior, and you bring others along to help you walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as a church, we come to you. And Lord, if there are people in this room who are struggling with guilt over things that have happened to them, more importantly, Lord, things that they have done that caused others harm, caused others hurt, it broke other people. And Lord, they come to this church and they're feeling guilty. People, because we've sinned and Whether or not it was a small sin or a big sin, Lord, we feel guilty. We feel duplicit in our actions. We raise our hands, singing you praise, and yet we know, Lord, our hearts sometimes long for the world. Forgive us, Lord. We admit what we've done is wrong. And Lord, we begin to introduce into our life. We ask you to help guide us, bring people into our lives that we can share these hurts with Lord and as we do that we repent we do Lord we're sorry we've offended you we're sorry we offended our brother and our sister Lord thanks for this opportunity to make it right and now Lord I pray that you would fill each and every soul in this room with peace you'd fill each and every person with love knowing that you love them beyond anything they could think or imagine. You've showered them with mercy. You've, you've, you've doused them in grace. And Lord, may they be aware of that as they leave today, filled with your presence, free from guilt and shame. In your precious name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.